The Almanac of American Politics is the longtime Bible of political knowledge, and a new edition is hitting the presses. This is the book that the folks who really care about politics turn to to learn about all the representatives and senators and governors. There are biographies of all of them, as well as in-depth profiles of the districts and states they represent. The authors, Richard Cohen and Louis Jacobson, are both steeped in the business. Rich used to work at CQ after a long tenure at National Journal. Lou is a roll call and National Journal veteran who now works at PolitiFact, the project the Tampa Times started with CQ back in 2008. Rich and Lou have covered Washington for decades and can give us a sense for how the moment we're in is so fundamentally different than the time before. Rich and Lou, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So guys, this is a labor of love for you. Can you pull back the curtain on the process of how you put this book together? So essentially, the work begins, right? the, the writing begins right after the election, uh, so in, in November. And uh, it's a fairly organized process. There's, uh, the book is more than 2,000 pages, so it's, uh, it's, it's a... It's a doorstop of a book and it requires a lot of work. We literally have just completed work on the editorial product. It's going to the printer and we'll have, we'll be sending out uh, copies of the book to our purchasers in the beginning of August. This has been a crazy political year with the presidential election as contested and hot as it was, very tight races in the House and Senate the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, which followed those two uh, runoff races in Georgia, which gave the Democrats Senate control. Did that require you to do a lot of revising of the profiles? Uh, um, not really. I mean, the, the one way in which uh, we've tried to kind of connect to the reality is uh, a, a significant number of the House and Senate profiles, especially of Republican members, uh, I've written and others have written those profiles in a way that we uh, describe uh, how they responded uh, to the January 6th uh, insurrection and, and more to the point, how they voted on whether to certify the Electoral College results of that day, January 6th, the results from uh, from Pennsylvania and Arizona. So that actually, that set of votes on Electoral College is one of the 12 key votes. Um, I mean, we since we began working on the book in, in, uh, in November, we, at that point, we didn't even know that, uh, Republic, that the Democrats would uh, take control if you, at least a 50-50 plus the vice president. Uh, we didn't know the results of the uh, Georgia election. Obviously, the, the profiles of the two senators uh, from Georgia were written uh, after the fact, but uh, it, it's a tricky thing, Sean, and you've been a reporter a long time, and you folks at CQ know that uh, we want to remain uh, relevant, but uh, the, the but we write uh, in advance in, in some cases, and uh, and and also, 
we're uh, we're always we're constantly updating throughout the process. So it's a, a tricky thing, uh, and and uh, not only to remain uh, relevant, but to respond to the circumstances such as uh, the January sixth uh, insurrection. Hey, Lou, let me turn to you. I mean, you too have been covering Congress for for decades now, and I'm wondering what your senses of how things have changed. I mean, in the old days, you had the power centers were in the congressional committees, and you had these old bulls who'd, who'd been there for years acquiring power, and they jealously guarded it. And now it seems that the power is shifting to the members who can go viral on social media, the AOCs, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the people who can draw a national audience. How has that affected, you know, how you how you put the book together, how you profile these members, and just your sense of how Congress works these days versus how it used to? Yeah, well, I I definitely agree with your assessment there um, that um, so much of the political discourse is about um, kind of gaining clicks, gaining shares on social media, um, and relatively little um, energy or time expended on uh, you know legislation substance in Congress. Um, I would um, go kind of uh, a step further. Um, my specific um, part of the almanac, I write the 50 state overview chapters and the 50 gubernatorial profiles. Um, and because Congress has been so gridlocked um, and in such a sort of state of partisan warfare, um, it hasn't really done much, uh, uh, you know, compared to what I used to do, at least, on the policy front. And a lot of that is falling to the states. And so, um, uh, you know, um, writing the, the, uh, the uh, 50 gubernatorial profiles this, this year, it really struck me um, how much legislation and, like, policy substance is going on in the states um, on both sides, uh, Democrats and Republican governors both, in part because... Um, uh, you have a lot of trifectas where the governor uh, and both chambers of the state legislature are in the same party's hands um, and often have a, a supermajority. <clears throat> and so you see um, sort of blue states uh, passing a lot of legislation favorable to the, uh, to the left side of the spectrum. And on the right side of the spectrum, um, a lot of Republicans passing laws uh, on social issues and other things. Uh, um, that sort of please their base. And um, a lot of governors um, in the profiles that I wrote really were, were, were sort of impressive, set, setting aside whether you, uh, you know, agree with their policies that they enacted or not, um, had um, a pretty good uh, and long list of things that they did and accomplished um, in their tenure. Um, uh, and, and I thought that was very striking compared to the sort of situation in Congress where you have a lot of, uh, you know, hot air, um, but not necessarily a lot of hardcore policymaking. Lou, can you speak a little more to that about the states and how they're changing? I mean, we're, we're always familiar now with talking about red states and blue states, but there are states that are morphing from one to the other or somewhere in between. I mean, we've seen West Virginia, for example, a formerly very Democratic state become very Republican. Missouri, similarly. Uh, where white working class voters are really propelling 
the state to the right. And on the other side, we're seeing diverse states move to the left. We saw Arizona and Georgia, for example, this year um, move into the Democratic column in the presidential race. We've seen states that used to be more competitive, like um, New Mexico or Nevada, uh, stay in the Democratic column. How are states shifting? And can we expect to see more of that in coming elections? Yeah, well, one of the really striking things um, in the research uh, that I've, I've done is um, just the um, correlation now between um, if a state's a red state, basically every position in that state is going to be red and vice versa. Uh, in blue states, every position, statewide elected officials, secretaries of state, state attorney generals, uh, lieutenant governors, if they run on a separate uh, ballot. Um, uh, and, and of course, um, there are only a couple states where the presidential vote has diverged from the Senate vote. I mean, West Virginia actually is one of those, and so is Montana, but there are not too many of those anymore. Um, and uh, in terms of, of the, in terms of the House delegations too, it's pretty rare to find any state where the uh, party that won the presidential race um, doesn't have a majority of the seats in the in the U.S. House delegation. Um, so it's really, uh, uh, you know, the days of um, uh, Joe Manchin, even though right now he's extremely powerful in the 50-50 Senate, um, it's increasingly hard to be a Joe Manchin, to get to be a Joe Manchin, because he has a very Republican state, and yet he's a Democrat who won a statewide office. Um, very, very hard to do these days. There are a few states that have a genuine mix of, um, of uh, state officials, um, from a sort of mix of parties. Uh, North Carolina happens to be one of those, and actually it was kind of interesting in 2020. Um, uh, in North Carolina elections, you had um, uh, no no part, no uh, um, state executive position flipped parties. It was a status quo election, um, uh, sometimes by very narrow margins. Um, but, uh, but they did have a mix of R's and D's in each of those positions, including judicial positions. Um, but that's highly rare. Uh, that's uh, really one of the only few states like that. The other thing I would say is that um, there, uh, this is my sixth almanac now that I've taken part in, and there's uh, definitely a rhythm to, uh, to each book. Um, this this uh, book followed the 2020 presidential election, so um, I put a lot of effort into looking at the state-by-state um, state and county-by-county county election uh, tallies for the 2020 presidential race. And with very few exceptions, the Democrats under Joe Biden gained at least a couple percentage points, sometimes more than a couple, so sometimes the double digits, uh, percentage points in terms of the suburban counties and the urban areas. And it was exactly the opposite um, in the rural areas where the Trump GOP um, gained quite a bit. So you really see a divergence if you look at it sort of county by county in the 50 states, um, how the nation is going. Suburban areas um, are trending blue, rural areas trending red. Right. So that polarization we see in Washington, it, it indeed reflects the states. Rich, you've written books about Congress. Um, you've written about Dan uh, Rostenkowski, for example, the ways and former Ways and Means chairman and the, the big tax law of the 1980s. Um, there's this perception that things used to work better, that the parties used to compromise more, that they used to be friendlier with each other. 
I'm wondering if you agree with that, if that's a correct assessment or if it's overblown. There's an affection for what was uh, described uh, in the past, uh, not always accurately, but it was described in the past as regular order, kind of how a bill became a law by going through the committee process with markups and amendments, and then it would go to the floor, and likewise, debate and amendments. And clearly, number one, that's gone. Uh, but on the other hand, it was it, it's been it, it has been disappearing for a few decades. Uh, but having said that, uh, I think it's Sean. You you make a very good point that committees it just in the last few years, uh, looking at uh, the Trump presidency, uh, committees you know had their members, um, but the major legislation, particularly the tax bill in two thousand seventeen. Uh, the, the COVID, the coronavirus relief legislation, a couple of bills that passed in that 2020, as you know, they were done largely uh, uh, through leadership offices, whether uh, Republicans were in control of the House on the tax bills, Democrats under Nancy Pelosi, uh, Speaker. Those bills were written uh, in uh, the Speaker's office and, and similarly uh, in the Senate Majority Leader's office. So this is uh, a change, and it, and it does have an impact on the way we do the Almanac because uh, it, it's it's not as above board. It's not uh, uh, it, it's it's not as easy to describe what goes on in in the back rooms. Uh, but we we try to do that, and we try to make the point uh, that there's been a change. Hey, Lou, did anything surprise you in uh, writing the book this year? One thing that was definitely different this year is. Uh, especially in my state portions, um, is the impact of the coronavirus. I mean, um, every state had to have basically a paragraph about how they were hit by the coronavirus and uh, you know, how the governor and the other politicians in the state responded to it. Um, so that was something, uh, you know, we haven't had, in my experience, this is my, the fourth book that I've done, the state overviews and the governors, and I don't recall any particular topic that just had to be in all 50 uh, uh, states uh, before. Um, there's certainly always the updates, especially in the state portions where you have, uh, you know, like so, sometimes a new governor coming in and, and facing a lot of, uh, of uh, bills to either sign or veto. And, and those happen pretty much during the time we're writing the book. So, uh, so, so it's not new that we have to, to sort of update uh, in that way. But um, I, I certainly had to deal with a very uh, um, uh, zigzagging situation with, uh, in terms of Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. Um, he ended up being the final of the hundred chapters that I wrote, um, simply because I, it seemed for a while like maybe he would step down or be impeached or something, um, and that I'd have to write a whole new person. Um, and uh, uh, in the end, he stuck it out. He's still sticking it out. You know, no one knows what what's going to happen in twenty twenty two, but. Um, uh, uh, that um, that uh, chapter certainly had to be uh, thoroughly updated. Political passions during 2020 rose to levels that I don't think I'd, I'd seen in my lifetime. I know they have existed at those levels in the course of American history, but we saw people enraged by the lockdowns. We saw people enraged about the killing of George Floyd and marching in the streets. 
Um, and we saw with President Trump a record turnout in the 2020 election. Do you think that those political passions carry over into 2022? I would uh, answer it a slightly different way. You, you referred earlier, Sean, to uh, the phenomena uh, in very, of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrats from New York, and uh, in, in the House representing Queens and the Bronx, and Republican freshman Marjorie Taylor Greene from Northwest Georgia. And they are, they become phenomena uh, by, because of their uh, creative use uh, of, of, of social media and they've built up large audiences. But one of the challenges we face in putting together the Almanac, and there's no question we, we write profiles of, of these and other members who are active presence on social media, but it's a challenge to figure out how much influence or what's the nature of their influence in, in Congress. And uh, I make the, kind of make the case that their influence is limited, but uh, in, in terms of legislative activity day by day, month by month. But in terms of your question of what happens in 2022, there's no question that such members, uh, at the very least, that the other party wants to uh, point attention. The Republicans want to point attention and do to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The Democrats point out uh, the foibles of Marjorie Taylor Greene. So that makes them real players uh, in congressional terms, even though uh, the parties, their respective parties as a whole, aren't always happy about that. We're seeing right now a real tug of war between moderates and progressives over President Biden's agenda. Both sides sort of laying down red lines about where they won't go, threatening to blow up the process. My impression is that typically politics moves to the center. But are the dynamics changing? Are the fringes of both parties gaining more clout? I mean, one thought on this is that um, so much of our politics and our political debate um, is um, is about maintaining outrage these days. Um, uh, you know, outrage is what drives clicks. Outrage is what drives donations. Um, and you don't get the clicks or the, or the donations with a smoothly, carefully modulated argument for something that's kind of a compromise or in the middle. Um, uh, both parties um, really see the strongest reactions from their supporters when they are bashing the other side. Um, and, uh, you know, this is not totally new, but it's been kind of hyper, uh, uh, sort, sort of hyper-partisanized um, by the nature of social media and online donations, I would say. Even though relatively few members in the Senate or in the House Wake up every morning and say, "How can I be? Uh, how can we act as centrist or uh, uh, bipartisan way?" The very fact of having a president who wants to go that way uh, has a significant impact, even as as we've seen with the uh, the, the, the transportation infrastructure bill uh, in recent weeks. Rich and Lou, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
And we thank you for listening to the last episode of CQ Future. We've been doing it for about a year now, and it's time to move on to the next thing. But we appreciate you listening. I'm Sean Zeller. The producers of this show were Joanne Levine and Evan Campbell. You can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com or your favorite podcast app.